You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the letter of Paul to the church at Ephesus. We turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We read there under the words of the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit that is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus you who once were far away, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together, and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him you too are being built together, to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Love the congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, Sunday afternoon, we started our new series of sermons on the canons of Dort with some really good news. And as a matter of fact, we started it with the best news in all the world, namely the news of John 3.16. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The canons, I remind you, had opened in Article 1 by reminding us about the terrible situation that mankind had created for itself. All men had sinned in Adam and were under the curse and deserving of eternal death. God, who had made everything good, right, and perfect, had seen man turn it all upside down and into one huge, stinking, moral mess. By God, the canons acknowledged, had every right to wash his holy hands of what had happened to his creation. No one could have blamed him for walking away or starting over. Only he did not do so. Instead of displaying his disgust, anger, and hatred, our God responded with love. He decided to send his very own son down to this world to rescue and redeem it. Through faith in Christ, God opened the door again for mankind to receive forgiveness, blessing, and life eternal. Yes, and that is not all that God did. To ensure that the world got this most gracious message, he decided to send out heralds. In the Old Testament, he sent out prophets. In the New Testament, he sends out apostles. And ever since, he's been sending out missionaries, hundreds upon thousands and tens of thousands of missionaries. He wants the joyful news of the gospel to fill the earth, to bring it to repentance, to faith in Christ. Well, beloved, that's how far we got last Sunday. But of course, the story isn't over. We want to know what happens next. We want to know what happens to this gospel. How exactly does it fare in the world? And so let's together turn to the next three articles in the canons. Article 4, the twofold outcome. The wrath of God remains upon those who do not believe this gospel. But those who receive it and embrace Jesus the Savior with a true and living faith are delivered by him from the wrath of God and from destruction and are given eternal life. Article 5, the cause of unbelief, the source of faith, the cause or guilt for this unbelief as well as for all other sins is by no means in God, but rather in man. Faith in Jesus Christ and salvation through him, however, is the free gift of God. As it is written, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Similarly, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should believe in him. Article 6, God's eternal decree. That God in time confers the gift of faith on some and not on others proceeds from his eternal decree. For he knows all his works from eternity, and he accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. 
According to this decree, he graciously softens the hearts of the elect, no matter how hard they may be, and inclines them to believe. Those not elected, however, he leaves in their own wickedness and hardness by a just judgment. And here especially is disclosed to us the profound, merciful, and at the same time just distinction between men equally worthy of condemnation, or that decree of election and reprobation which has been revealed in God's word. Although perverse, impure, and unstable men twist this duct or decree to their own destruction, it provides unspeakable comfort for holy and God-fearing souls. Thus far. Beloved, having read that together, I preached to you this morning on the following theme, the progress of the gospel, and we're going to consider, first of all, different outcomes. Secondly, diverse causes, and finally, deep decrees. Now, beloved, the heading above Article 4 already tells the tale when it announces a twofold outcome. In other words, the gospel of deliverance in Jesus Christ goes out into this world and it is met with a twofold response. Some people hear this message, they grab hold of it, they embrace Jesus Christ and are saved. Others, however, hear it and shrug their shoulders, laugh and walk away or else they bite back with outrage, sarcasm, and insult. And that is pretty well it. There is no third reaction. It would appear that the gospel does either one of two things. It either brings people to faith, or it confirms them in their unbelief. And for the rest, there is nothing in between. There is no middle ground, there is no third option, there is no halfway house of one sort or another. It's either one thing or the other. It's either faith or unbelief. It's either back to God or away from God. You either walk in the light or you remain in the darkness. And now, beloved, for us who are familiar with the teachings of the Bible, this comes as no great surprise. Do we not read in Hebrews 4.12 that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged or double-edged sword? As a sword has two edges, so it has two functions. It either preserves and defends you, or it takes and destroys life. And so it is with the sword, and so it is with the gospel. Yes, and so it has worked throughout salvation history. It already began very early in the history of mankind. Abel received the gospel. Cain rejected it. Noah and his family received it. The world at large spurned it. Jacob received it, albeit with a good deal of deceit and scandal. Esau renounced it. Israel received it, at least some of them did, but Egypt scoffed at it. And later we are told that whereas the remnant of Israel received it, the majority of them wanted nothing to do with it. 
In other words, although the old, all through the Old Testament we see that the message of the gospel cuts two ways. And that phenomenon doesn't stop in the Old Testament either. It continues on in the New Testament. John the Baptist comes as the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ and his message is either believed and embraced or otherwise it's mocked and dismissed. Why, the Savior himself, when he comes speaking the most gracious words in all the world, receives the same treatment. And later on in the book of Acts, we meet this kind of thing time and time again. For example, with regard to the latter, Acts chapter 13 gives us a very clear illustration of this. Paul and his companions, they come to Pisidian Antioch, and they are invited by the rulers of the synagogue to bring a message of encouragement. And that is then what they bring. Beginning in Egypt many, many centuries ago, Paul tells the old, old story, and he moves from King Saul to David to Christ. He appeals to Abraham and John the Baptist. He cites the scriptures and their fulfillment. He recounts the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And finally, he climaxes it all with a passionate appeal, my brothers. I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him everyone who believes is justified. And what is then their reaction? You can read about it in verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad. And they honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed to eternal life believed. But you can also read about it in verse 50. The Jews incited God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. All these people hear exactly the same message, the same appeal. What a difference there is in terms of reaction and response. To the Gentiles it comes across as the best news in all the world. And it's giving to them a whole new lease of life. But to the Jews it represents an ugly heresy that needs to be stamped out at all costs. So, beloved, it is we have one gospel, two outcomes. We see it in history, we see it in the Bible. Why, we can even see it all around us today. Tell the gospel to your neighbors or your fellow workers and what happens. Many of them may hear you politely because this is the age of politeness, you know. And then choose to ignore completely what you have said. Others, on the other hand, show interest and want to know more. There is still this diametrically opposed reaction. 
Yes, and even if you bring, beloved, even if you bring this message with great urgency and earnestness, that doesn't seem to change. Many will come and dismiss it as nothing more than a religious sales pitch. But you know, it's so much more than that. The canons say that ultimately, and you may have caught that, this is a matter of the wrath of God. Article 4 says the wrath of God remains upon those who do not believe this gospel, but those who believe it are delivered by him from the wrath of God and from destruction. In other words, this is serious business. This is the most serious business in all the world. And then I realize some may be inclined to say, yes, but that's the extreme language and terminology of the canons. That's just scary human language. But is that true? We mentioned at the beginning of this sermon the gracious words of John 3.16. You know about the words of verse 36 of the same chapter? Where it says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. God's wrath remains on him. That's inspired language, beloved. That's John the Baptist speaking about Jesus and about the need for faith in him and about what happens if it is not there. All in all, it's not a pleasing prospect. And it warns us not to treat the gospel lightly. Yes, and that applies in your life and my life too. What have we done? What are we doing with this most joyful message? Do we hear it and yawn? Do we hear it and then ignore it? Or do we hear it and rejoice? Do we hear it and believe it and praise God from delivering us from the wrath to come? And from that great destruction to his son? So, beloved, the gospel of Jesus Christ produces two very different outcomes. But is that all? Shall we stop at this point and switch subjects? Well, not if we follow the canons for next. You can see they dig deeper. They want to explore this twofold reaction, this twofold outcome further, and they want to know why, why is it so? So why is it so? Who's to blame for this development? 
The natural man replies that it's not so hard to determine, for the fact of the matter is, he says, where there is unbelief, it is God's fault, and where there is faith, it is to man's credit. And either way, man comes out smelling like a rose. Why, in some ways, it's like a story I remember from years ago. A boy comes home with a really bad report card. And finally, he gives his report card to his father, and his father reads the report card, and as he reads it, his color changes, and he gets redder and redder. And the boy knows that something surely is coming in the form of an eruption. And before it can happen, he says, what's the problem, Dad, heredity or environment? Smart kid. But a smart-alecky answer. And that's what man loves to give. He loves to point the finger away from himself and in the direction of someone else. But God, in his word, doesn't let him do that. And that's why Article 5 states the cause of the guilt for this unbelief is by no means in God. And in a way that reminds you perhaps of Lord's Day 3, question 6 of the Catechism. Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? And the answer there was emphatic, no, on the contrary. And here it is just as emphatic. Man is only himself to blame. In a way, you know, we are reminded here of the haunting words of our Lord Jesus Christ towards the end of his earthly life. When he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You were not willing. Doesn't that tell the sad but brutal story? Man wasn't willing. And still today, beloved, when people refuse to repent and believe, the blame cannot be shifted elsewhere. And we love to do that. Indeed, we're a kind of artists and masters of that. Something bad happens in our life, you know, and we tend to blame our parents, or we, we blame our upbringing, or we blame our society, or we blame the church, or, or something, or someone else. We, we look everywhere else, and we point in every which direction, whereas the truth of the matter is that so often... We have no one to blame but ourselves. We need to point the finger at ourselves. An unbelieving heart is our fault. And no one else's. And it most certainly is not God's fault. But then what about a believing heart? Where does it come from? Can we take the credit for it? 
Of course, we're inclined to do so, and we often do. More than one famous evangelist in the past has stressed that faith is actually nothing more than a matter of man exercising his own will. It's something you can do and something you must do, but but is that true? Is faith some kind of a homegrown commitment? Is it something that we can do all by ourselves and using our very own abilities? The canons flatly deny it. And again, we don't like it when they do that. We hate it when they set us straight. We dislike being contradicted, but that too is necessary. For the testimony of the Holy Scriptures on this point is clear. Article 5 quotes those those words of Ephesians 2 and, and what basic words they are. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works. So that no one can boast. Surely that's clear enough. This is not from ourselves. And so the message, beloved, is that faith is not our doing. As Paul says, it's God's gift to us. It's His doing. It's His working. It's it's His creation. Our, our sinful, distorted, fallen wills do not have the capacity in and of themselves to embrace God. No, they need God in order to believe in God. They need the Spirit. They need His regenerating work. Only God can give new life to dead people. And only God can soften hardened hearts. And only God can change corrupt wills. And so, beloved, the reality is that the cause of unbelief lies with us and the source of faith lies with God. What we bring to the table of salvation, so to speak, is nothing else but our sin and our unbelief. The only contribution that we make when it comes to our salvation is, sorry to say it, but it's true, a negative one. The gift of faith is a gift that only God can give. And you know what that means? That means that if you're looking for faith, you need to look to God. If faith is lacking in your life, if it's lacking in the lives of your children or your friends or your co-workers, there's only one solution. Call on the Lord. Heed the wise advice that King David gave to his son Solomon. If you seek him, he will be found by you. 
And accept the invitation of the prophet Isaiah. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord. And he will have mercy on him. And to our God. For he will freely pardon. Beloved, what wonderful words, what splendid advice. Forget about discovering your inner self and its potential. Look to God first of all and call on Him. He will hear you. He will pardon you. He will give you faith. Well, beloved, thus far we have explored quite far. Take a note of the different outcomes to the preaching of the gospel. We've considered the different reactions to it and its diverse causes. In short, we've covered quite some ground, and that raises the question, is there really a need to go any further, or shall we stop here? How far shall we go? Well, if you turn once again to the canons, beloved, you see that they do not stop here. They go further still. And indeed, they go a lot further and a lot deeper as well. As a matter of fact, they may go so deep that some of you may be inclined to say to yourself, well, this is too deep and too far for me. It's all getting beyond me. And in a way, that may be true. But on the other hand, you need to realize a couple of things here. First of all, the canons are here being forced to go into controversy and disagreement. And secondly, in going in this direction, the canons are not going any further than Scripture itself does. Take the latter. When we turn to the Scriptures again, what does it say about us and our salvation? It says that ultimately this this whole salvation of ours, every part of it, every aspect of it, is grounded and rooted in the eternal decree of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, putting it very plainly, it means that already before the world was made or the earth was founded, the triune God was at work. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit were making decisions or decrees. Together they were deciding on a plan of salvation. Some theologians even speak about the persons of the triune God making a covenant of redemption among themselves. Now we may be somewhat reluctant to give names to this because Scripture itself doesn't do so. 
And yet, beloved, if you read the Scriptures, you cannot escape the reality that, that something momentous is going on between the persons of the triune God before the very foundation of the world. Read, for example, the Gospel of John, and, and you come across our Savior saying things like, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will but the will of him who sent me. In other words, people, I'm on a mission. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me. In other words, my mission has to do with people. People who have been given to me. And read, for example, the high priestly prayer of John 17, where it says, For you granted him authority over all people that he might give to eternal life to all those you have given him. And verse 6 of the same chapter, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me, Father, out of this world. Now, beloved, when you take those passages, when you look at other passages as well, it's clear that God the Father gave to God the Son already before the world began a specific mission. And that mission is all about saving a people whom he has been given. When Christ came to earth, he was seeking certain people in order to save them and to give eternal life to them. And that, beloved, is a startling thought to ponder. If you thought that salvation was just an accident waiting to happen, you need to think again. Or if you thought that the cause of your salvation ultimately rests in you, you need to give your head a shake. Or if you thought that this salvation was some kind of minor matter, then you need to retune your mind. For salvation, as the canon summarizing the scriptures remind us in Article 6, salvation finds its origin in God. All who believe are part of his plan. He's the one who chooses us from before creation. He's the one who causes us to believe. He's the one who softens our hearts. He's the one who clothes us in righteousness. He's the one who brings us to eternal life. And can we grasp it? Are we able to figure this all out all by ourselves? Is it so easy to tie all of the ends together? No, it's not. We're dealing here with a lot of mystery. We're into the deep things of God. 
And so often when we are in the deep things of God, our minds hit a wall. And in subsequent sermons, we're going to see the Lord willing that there is more to all this mystery aspect of the faith. And you know, in a way, that's all right. For what's salvation really all about? It's about us finding our rest in the sovereign, marvelous, majestic God of all the earth. It's not for us to figure him out. If you could figure him out, he wouldn't be God. And it's not for us to get our minds around all that he is and does and is doing. Now the scripture says it's for us to trust in him. After all, he's mighty and good and wise and merciful and loving and knowing. And it's for us to do his will and heed his word. After all, his word is our most reliable guide. And it's for us, you know, to rejoice in him. When all the debates and all of these theological distinctions have been made, one great reality remains about the work of God, and that is He's given us His Son. His very own Son. As our Savior, Redeemer, and Lord. Beloved, live your life of faith according to his will and leave the mysteries to God. He knows what he's doing and he will do it well. Graciously, lovingly, wonderfully well. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.